Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael Rielvas is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He makes an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians, and who does not need that? Everybody needs that. Michael has your best interest at heart when it comes to disability insurance. We know he'd be happy to help you address your needs. You can find Michael at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance or contact him at 800-817-4522. Don, do you think that the amount of clinical violence has gone up in absolute numbers over the past number of years? Or do you think we're just recognizing it, labeling it more properly, and hopefully have a toolkit to prevent and manage it? I, I think it's a little of both. The problem is we don't have good data. It's 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 underreported by about 70%. Um, and it, it's interesting in our survey when we asked uh, clinical staff, why don't you, first of all, the, the, the foundational question was, have you been instructed to report all acts of violence? Yeah. And about 80% said, oh yeah, but they, they tell us to do it. But uh, I had 25% of our survey respondents tell us, I never report it. And I had another 50% well, hang, say, hang on. Okay. So 80% are told to report it, yet there's a large number aware that they should report it that intentionally choose not to report it. And it's not for intellectual laziness. I'm sure they must have an internal reason for mm -hmm. why they would just let it go. I mean, it's hard to imagine you would let a violent workplace go, but jump in there's got to be yeah no, help it's, us understand it, this yeah there's a lot to unpack there it's uh it, it, one of the main reasons is and again nursing staff they're busy they're overworked mm -hmm. i've got to go now i've got to go into the, this risk management database and report that and let's face it that's what most of those reporting mechanisms are risk management reporting systems are built for the risk managers they are so not it's one, so it's a one hour trip uh, from a very busy day to fill out a fair amount of paperwork, an investment of time, and most of us are willing to make an investment if we see some payoff. Correct. And and they don't see the payoff. And and it is. Mm. It's I, I've I've actually used that, at least in, in the hospital we did the survey, and I, I've used that application. It is awkward. On the front end, it is terrible. The risk managers like it because it, it neatly formats the information on the back end. But if I'm a busy nurse, I've got three patients, I haven't had lunch yet, and I've got two more coming in, and they just called a code down the hall, I'm not going to sit in front of that terminal and enter that. When I finally have time at the end of my shift, I'm not going to stay for another hour to input that information in a risk management database. We've got to have better, simpler reporting mechanisms. So it's one. Easier, easier data entry. But let okay, let's assume we have the easy data entry. That may be necessary, but not sufficient to get people to properly report. Because again, we view this as an investment and it's investment of time. Mm -hmm. So on the front end, if you don't have to invest as much time, there's 
probably a better return on your investment, mm -hmm. but you still are expecting something to come out of this because e even even investing 15 minutes for busy nurses' time is, is a lot of time. I mean, I, I'm sure they want to see something come out of it. What is their what is their expectation, and what has been the reality? It's pretty dismal. Um, that's the other uh, thing that was tickled out of our survey is um, many of the nurses who did not report clinical violence uh, basically said, what's the point? Management will not do anything. We're still going to take these patients, and that's just part of the job. One of the other interesting questions uh, um, we asked in our survey was um, essentially a true or false statement. Um, being subjected to violence is just part of the job in healthcare. And 60% of our respondents said yes. They just believe that that's part of, part of the job. You'd expect that from a mixed martial arts fighter, but I'm not sure you'd expect that going into medical school or nursing school. I think you would expect that there'd be a collection of tools, mechanisms, et cetera, to just keep you out of harm's way. That, that's yeah, and, and there was sobering. a lot of cynicism about, uh, a lot of cynicism towards management. I said, I, I'd report it, but they're not going to do anything. So why waste my time reporting if I know nothing's going to happen? And that that was disturbing to us because really, uh, you know, uh, at the executive level and, and talking to uh, nurse managers and nursing leadership, they're very aware of it. They're committed to it. But somehow that message gets muddled uh, coming from the C-suite to the to the line nursing staff. And, and that's probably something that... Uh, uh, needs to improve. Now, the other thing that that came up is is this this role conflict. Um, and and when we're talking to nurses, uh, um, uh, we we teach a class for nurses on verbal de-escalation, and and you know how people mm -hmm. react differently to different types of of people. I, I ask the class, uh, thinking of your role as a nurse, how many of you consider yourself an authority figure? And in a class of about fifty, maybe two hands come up. I said, well, let, let's think about this again. Let's put this in an inpatient setting. Now you've got that patient who's bed bound. They need you for everything, mm -hmm. whether you eat, go to the bathroom, uh, you can't reach something on the table. They're having to call you. You are an authority figure, even though you, and, and I get pushback on that. They said, no, I'm a caregiver. I'm a helper. Yes, you are. But you have to understand, and this is the key to negotiation and de-escalation, is you've got to look at how you're perceived by the other person. You don't have to agree with it, but you have to recognize their perceptions and they perceive you as an authority figure. And if you understand that, and if you understand that authority figures are great targets for displaced anger, that explains some, some, some of this violence. So um, having them understand that they are perceived as an authority figure is key, but it, but it gets us to this point, uh, uh, really the concept of moral injury, right? Um, I'm here to care for this person. All I want to do is make them better, yet they're being verbally abusive to me, or they're being violent, or, or, or they're being, and, 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 and it leads to that, it leads to that burnout. It leads to people wanting to leave the, the profession. Um, and, and we've seen it in, in just the nurses that we talked with and debriefed after incidents um, in our survey. Uh, it, it was a huge factor. Almost everyone that goes into healthcare does it to help people. I mean, there are some people who just go into it for making cash, and I would say there are probably easier ways to make a living than, than mm -hmm. doing that. But by and large, they go into it to help people, and um, that's the idealistic entry point 
for the vast majority of providers. And over time, the interaction with different types of patients causes some to become cynical. Um, you had mentioned that the C-suite was trying to deliver a message that they did care about workplace violence, but that message was being lost. I guess the thinking is, is that when you're in the C-suite, you aren't the direct recipient of this workplace violence. It's clinical violence. So how would you even know what we're talking about? But they did bring you in to try and bridge that gap. I mean, mm -hmm. you were brought in primarily, or at least for one reason, to solve a particular problem, to get people comfortable that the C-suite was taking this seriously and they wanted to, to make a difference. Give us an example of, of kind of low-level clinical violence um, with a, and make it a nurse and a patient and, and make it a patient that has been to the hospital before. Everybody kind of mm -hmm. knows who it is. Yeah. Um, and nobody's jumping up and down about taking care of this patient. The nurse wants to do a great job, of course, um, but this is not the only patient on the ward. May have 10 other patients, and this one is a high-maintenance patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting. Familiar? Does that yeah, sound familiar? Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Very familiar. Um, you have these hard to place patients, and and some of this ties into the reason why clinical violence isn't reported. Um, and and what you have is is uh, somebody will come in, family can't care for them anymore. Uh, maybe they have some some ambulatory issues, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 some fairly significant cascading health problems. They're in the hospital. We resolve that acute condition. We know they're not going home. Now, are they going to go to a rehab facility or, or, or some other in intermediate care facility? How do you place them? How do you find them? You've got the traditional challenges of, uh, is this private pay? Is this private insurance? Okay, is there, are there enough Medicaid beds? Can I get it? Mm -hmm. So you, you already have a complicated situation. Now maybe there's some behaviors. And uh, um, the facilities are, are very selective on that. Our, our hospital actually hired a social worker as a complex transitions coordinator. And their whole job was to find beds for these hard to place patients because ultimately sometimes, uh, you know, it's like Pottery Barn, you touched it last, you own it, right? And then, yes. and so now you, you've got this patient who really doesn't need inpatient hospital level care, but they're shipwrecked there because we can't find the rehab facility to take them. The family has made a, a very defendable case that we can't, care for them at home anymore. So they're, they're literally stuck. And that, that is the, frustrating. The proverbial hot potato. Nobody wants the hot potato, partly because of how they've been labeled, I think. So, exactly. I mean, you have, on the one hand, you want to label this properly. So you understand who may be potentially mm -hmm. at risk for creating uh, clinical violence. On the other hand, that label can turn into a toxic label making you keep that particular patient on your ward forever. So, I mean, how do you, how do you thread that needle? It's at, 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 that's a tough one. And we've had those discussions and, and that plays into why am I going to report this? We need to get this guy. He's not happy here. We're not happy with him here. We need to get him to another facility. If I document every time he uses profanity or tries to slap me or makes a sexually inappropriate comment, nobody's going to touch him. He's radioactive and I can't get him out of the hospital. So there is this, uh, you know, and everybody wants to chart accurately. Everybody wants 
wants to put things in there that are medically necessary, but you kind of create this dilemma where I'm now going to paint a picture that that this person is not uh, suitable for any facility. We we did overcome that. We we and we had a strategy with that, and that comes into having a dedicated team uh, that was addressing clinical violence. So one of the 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 components of our team was when we had one of these complex, hard to manage, hard to place patients, we had a licensed clinical social worker with a crisis background. We, we found this unicorn and hired her and, and she came in and would do a behavioral assessment. We would do a specific behavior plan for that patient. Then part of the package when we're essentially selling this patient to a rehab facility is hey, yes, there were behaviors. Yes, you see that in the chart. However, here's the behavior plan that we developed. This behavior plan worked, and we can document we saw a decrease in violent behavior or unacceptable behavior, whatever the problem was. And if you take this patient, our unicorn, our, our mm -hmm. crisis social worker will come to your facility, train your staff on the behavior plan, and we will do this enhanced warm handoff for you. And, and that really uh, got us over a lot of the apprehension for taking some of these patients. So we were able to go into these facilities with that behavior plan and educate the staff because you look at some of these other facilities and they, they don't have the training. Um, so that was a big selling point. So you cool down that hot potato. Essentially, you acknowledge <laughs> right. the fact that, yes, this patient did have an isolated problem, maybe time limited. This is what we did and how we did it. And I can train you on how to do it. And don't trust me on my word. I will mm -hmm. actually come down here and show you how to do it. In a sense, you were taking all the risk out of the transfer. And that shipwreck patient, that shipwreck potato, to mix metaphors, um, had a path, had, had, had a good path to go somewhere else. Um, I like the whole notion of it. It, it avoids this binary label, you know, mm -hmm. disruptive, not disruptive. Of course, everybody wants the easy patient. Nobody wants the hard patient. But if you have the hard patient and you've written up a roadmap on how to manage it, then it goes down a little bit easier. And, and more importantly, I think you start training a bunch of people with these softer skills on how to manage it. So instead of this just being a one-off, you have the benefit of educating using as an example to assist more than one, more than this one person, but to, but to assist many potatoes, many hot mm -hmm. potatoes. I keep yeah. remembering you're from Idaho, so I'm using right, the right. potato analogy yeah. more. Obligatory potato jokes, yeah. The, yes. So it's... Uh... Well, the other thing we found, so so this the 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 survey here focused on um, you know reaction and why people don't report. The other fascinating thing we found is we also wanted to look at the demographic and mm -hmm. who are the patients that are assaulting healthcare workers. Right. And uh, anecdotally, we kind of had had some ideas about where this was going to be, and and this shouldn't surprise anybody. But we looked at about 28 months of of data uh, regarding patient assaults. And about 70% of the assaultive patients had dementia or some other kind of cognitive impairment. And it makes perfect sense to me. If I'm an 80-year-old man, I'm in the hospital for a hip replacement, I'm right. not oriented towards time or place, I think I'm in my bedroom at home, and that right. CNA comes in at 4 o'clock in the morning to check the IV, I'm, I'm punching her. What, what are you doing in my bedroom? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that makes, makes perfect sense to me. 
Um, so we, we need to do a better job. And, and, and um, there, there's kind of a split in nursing on how we handle aggressive behavior with dementia patients. And, and there are those that will tell you, well, none of these traditional de-escalation techniques are going to work because they, they don't have that, that cognitive ability to, to really process what you're, you're telling them. Um, you know, that they're a starfish, they're reactive. That's all they, you know, it's a, well, no, they're not. I, I, and it goes back all the way to those core principles. It goes all the way back to that, that, that universality of emotion. Mm -hmm. Guy with I the agree. green monster in the corner. I'm a dementia patient. I'm scared. I don't know where I am. I, I can talk about the emotion. Let's, let, let's talk about the emotion and these emotion-based de-escalation techniques that are really our bread and butter. And we're talking good basic therapeutic communication skills, active listening skills that's been around forever. Those are all that make that that emotional connection. So that still works. I mean, I in my career as a law enforcement negotiator, I've negotiated with a guy, you know, whacked out of his mind on PCP. I mean, he doesn't have the cognitive ability to understand what I'm saying, but right. but that emotional component works. There, there there's there's the other voice within nursing that says, no, this stuff does work. Um, so, and, and I'm in that camp. I, I, I think you can still try to make that, nego uh, that emotional connection. Yeah. Um, count, count me in that camp too. And I wasn't always in that camp. So I practiced as a neurosurgeon for a decade. Um, and then I had a child at the age of three was diagnosed with pretty severe autism, did not, does not produce speech, but is able to comprehend a bit, still functions at a very low level. I still remember to this day, and it's been decades, where we would need to get blood from him, you know, and he was a tiny little dude, but it took four of us to hold him down. He was three or four years old at the time, took four of us, and even then we weren't particularly effective. I mean, it's amazing how much, how much strength this tiny little person had in terms of fighting us. So my wife brilliantly said one day, look, I'm just going to tell him what we're going to do, okay? Instead of holding him down, I'm going to talk him through it. And I said, good luck. That'll never work. Um, so I, I'm, I'm allowed to say that I was wrong and she was right. So what happened? She that, basically, powerful, yeah, yeah it basically she just said, look, Josh, um, we need to get um, some blood from you. It's going to take a minute and um, it'll hurt. You'll have a little boo-boo for, um, for a minute. And then when you're done, you'll be able to get up and we'll get some ice cream. Sound fair enough? Answer was, he just put out his arm. It required not even one person to mm -hmm. hold him. I mean, he basically just followed the script. And of course, we had to give him the ice cream afterwards and honor our end of the bargain. Mm -hmm. And for years afterwards, same thing, never a problem. Um, so the before picture was it took four people to inadequately hold down a tiny person with superhuman strength. The after picture was by using gentle... Um, verbal skills and tapping into the fear because I think what happened was when he was fighting he didn't know how much it would hurt he didn't know how long it would take and candidly he probably didn't know if this was going to be you know his existence going forward um, right. and my wife just tapped right into the emotional aspect that you described even though his verbal processing skills are minimal but she made that connection and we got to the desired uh, outcome. So I count me as a believer, and I, I don't, I don't understand why more people don't believe that. I think it's if you can do it in the cohort we just talked about. I think many times it's probably easier 
to do it with um, an elderly person who otherwise has reasonable skills, but maybe temporarily, um, you know, suffering from a delusion. What am I missing yeah. here? Yeah. No, why, why, why is there so much? Um, why, why, why is there so much defensiveness against this? And they reach for the antipsychotics, for right, the right. four point restraints so quickly. I mean, the thing about four point restraints is that if somebody's teetering on the edge of 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 decompensating, stick them in four point restraints and yeah. then see what you get. Yeah, that, that's the fast track for that. Well, this goes back to again another foundational law enforcement negotiation principle and you know we spend all our time trying to you know talk the guy with the gun out of the house but mm -hmm. at some point okay he's ready to come out but we don't want him to come out in an unsafe way because th those transitions right are the most dangerous and volatile times so we actually have uh, we have a term of art for it we call it the surrender ritual and it involves painting that verbal picture about what's going to happen. That's exactly what you did with your son. And, and this is what works with the psychotic patients. This is what works with the dementia patients is you paint that verbal picture of what's going to happen and it lowers that anxiety level. So that's, that, that's right out of the textbook. Now, so the, uh, in this uh, survey, so, yeah. so the number one category were the dementia patients. What surprised us was the second most category. And, and we knew about the dementia from anecdotally from talking to people, but 20% uh, of the assaultive patients had some form of infectious process. And many times- Repeat that again. Been, Repeat that one more yeah. time so our listeners can digest exactly what you said, because I, I'm kind of stunned about the size of that number, actually. Yeah. So, so w when we looked at 28 months of who are the patients that assault healthcare workers? 70% had dementia. Uh, approximately 20% had some form of infectious process. And, and they could many, be both. You could be yeah, dementia with an infectious process, correct? Yeah. And in, in many cases, that had not already been diagnosed. So now let's go back. I'm the same 80-year-old mm -hmm. man in the hospital for a hip replacement. I got right. a catheter in, and I have a raging UTI that you haven't yet detected. I'm going to be edgy. I might swing on somebody. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's going to happen. And, and we actually uh, um, found that to be uh, uh, kind of a surprising result when we looked at the data. I mean, in one sense, it's satisfying because if you find it, I think the next principle you're describing is that these are solvable problems, meaning that while, while you can use verbal de-escalation techniques, if you put this patient on a antibiotic to address the urinary tract infection and put them on an analgesic to decrease the sensation of burning, you um, you may resolve this matter pretty quickly. So the important point is don't just assume that someone coming in is floridly psychotic for no reason, just a mental illness or they're demented. There may be an underlying cause that is treatable and that has to be immensely satisfac uh, satisfying to find the cause, treat it, and have everybody walk out happy. Yeah, it, it raises the question, when is behavior a symptom? Mm -hmm. And and we've got to ask that question more often. Is this, is this behavior for behavior's sake? Is this instrumental behavior? Uh, is this a strategy on the part of the patient? Or is this actually a symptom? So that was, that was a surprising finding for us. And, and, and again, we, uh, 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 were able to actually detect some infections that, that the hospital staff had not yet detected yet. Then there's the simple misunderstandings. We had another patient, a uh, uh, very pleasant elderly woman in there for a medical condition, um, 
but as and, and I think she was in for about a week and each day she became increasingly agitated and non-compliant and uh, we were even talking to fan she she had the benefit of a supportive family and they were caring for her in the home and they were puzzled by it too it's like we, we we've never seen this before I mean what what's driving this what happened and uh Nursing staff kept complaining is that we, we come in to administer meds or to even talk to her and, and she just gets gets agitated and, and, and upset. And when we try to deescalate her, it just seems to make it even worse. So we don't know what's going on. Uh, we sent our unicorn social worker in there mm -hmm. and uh, uh, she did a much better social history. Come to find out she had hearing loss and it was more pronounced in one ear than the other. And nobody thought to bring her hearing aids to the hospital. So the side of the bed that was closest to the door yeah. where nursing staff would come to approach her was the one that she was practically deaf in. And she she was frustrated because she couldn't she couldn't hear. You know, you it's know, good to have thing. it's very good to have a Sherlock Holmes on the staff to be able to identify uh, this stuff. Kind of reminds me of the old uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson interaction. They were. Um, they were outdoors camping and Sherlock Holmes points to Watson. He goes, Watson, what do you observe? He goes, I'm looking up, I'm looking up at the stars and I just see this vast infinity of bright stars. And it makes me feel like there's cosmic significance, but we're amazingly insignificant. That's what I observe. He says, no, Watson, what you should be observing is that someone stole our tent. <laughs> so, yes, point yeah. being, it's always good to have someone who's truly observing. And you know, interestingly enough, there was a similar experience. Um, I um, I'm an avid cyclist, and I go among the people I go with a father and daughter, and the daughter was involved in a, a very difficult um, automobile bicycle accident. She was taking an intensive care unit. Um, I'll fast forward. She made an excellent and amazing recovery. And I went cycling with both of these people yesterday. So great outcome. But she was in the intensive care unit and she had um, cranial nerve problems, double vision, et cetera. And most of the nursing staff or doctors that came to see her were approaching her on the left side, the side that maximizes her double vision causing nausea and vomiting etc so not no surprise she was trying to avoid that ugly and horrible sensation if you approached her on the right side no problem whatsoever i mean she was responsive and engaging etc and it took about two days before a sign went up saying look if you're going to interact with this patient do it <laughs> make sure you approach from the right side. I mean, this is such a simple intervention, but mm -hmm. if you don't have that interaction and, you know, she was on a ventilator and had all the things going on at the same time, that's not a subtle detail. That's actually a very big detail that could keep yep. someone in the hospital for an extra week, can cause people to come to the wrong conclusion. The patient is not recovering, more tests, more trips to the CT scan. So, um, I mean, it sounds like this this unicorn social worker is worth her weight in gold or since you're in Idaho in sapphires, correct? Right, right, right. Nobody right. knows what we're talking about. Explain to people what we mean by sapphires here. Idaho is actually uh, uh, not the potato state, uh, uh, but it is uh, an official slogan. It's the gem state. And, uh, and apparently there's a, a specific uh, form of star sapphire that mm -hmm. can only be found in Idaho and Pakistan. I 
you know, talk about a geographic oddity there. I'm not sure how that uh, worked out. Yeah, interesting. So, Don, so I can't that, thank you. Yeah, but, oh, just just to kind of bring it in for a landing here. I please mean, do because I've before we leave, I want to make sure that a people know how to get in touch with you, particularly C-suite um, hospital administrators. And number two, I really want you to leave our listeners with the two most salient points that if we had to concentrate this, mm -hmm. I just want, and have to leave with either just one or two points, I want you to um, to bring it back home for them. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can kind of try to tie it up here. So look, this problem is not new. Healthcare has been aware of it for a long time. But I, I think it's time for a discussion about what we do about it. And and uh, we like to break the, the the issue and the solution up into three parts. There's the initial assessment phase. Then there's the reactive response phase. Then there's aftercare. Everybody's got the middle piece, okay? Everybody has a reactive thing. You have a violent patient on your floor. You're going to call the code gray, and, mm -hmm. and the team's going to come. You're going to have five security guys and housekeeping and clinicians. and so, so everybody has that response piece, and that's great. The problem that we're doing here is with 70% of our population being dementia, um, we need to right-size that response, and there's some really great research out there that shows, uh, whether it's law enforcement or healthcare or anything, this overwhelming show of force is actually a good de-escalation piece for somebody who's, who's, who's potentially violent, except for dementia patients. And uh, Dr. Scott Zeller was part of a, a great research paper that, that explored this and had some great data that shows that that overwhelming show of force will actually further escalate a dementia, dementia patient. So we've got to right-size that responsive component to begin with. And, and, and that, that's one thing. What we're not doing is that assessment piece on the front end. And, and uh, the other thing that, that uh, I've done, I, there's a, a new professional certification out there. I, I'm a certified threat manager through the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. And that's originally grew out of the school shooting and the traditional workplace violence active shooter um, phenomenon. But a lot of the, the assessment tools and a lot of how we look at this pathway to violence, uh, that also exists in, in healthcare. Uh, there are pre-incident indicators. There are warning signs. You have to look for them. You have to see them. And one of the things we found in in, in our, our our hospital when we tried to we wanted to build an assessment tool. Nursing first looked at you. Um, not another assessment, please. Don't 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 levy me with another assessment. Exactly. And 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 I've actually got a uh, you know assessment such a loaded word in nursing because it it means a lot of things. But but yeah. the, uh, what we did is we looked at all the original intake assessments that were already done and already automated. And we identified key fields and had a custom report made that pulled from all these different assessments that nursing already did to flag patients that may have conditions that may lead to violence. The other thing we don't do is, let's say uh, you have somebody who's been a patient before, they check into the emergency room on their prior visit, they had a history of MRSA, right? You, mm -hmm. you type their name in that computer and alarms and flares and bells and confetti and everything's going to come up because, mm -hmm. wow, this one had MRSA. Um, but if that patient punched a nurse, you know it nowhere. In fact, what we found many times, there was no even handoff from shift to shift. So if that patient punched a nurse on day shift, chances are night shift didn't even know about it. Now, you know, our, our current, you know, EHR systems allow for flagging. 
we don't want this to be some permanent medical scarlet letter that uh, you know prevents them from getting care but it's no different than any other threatening health condition so we've got to revisit the issue about flagging and 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 do we put visual indicators on doors there there are certain organizations that do that so there's a lot of work i think to be done on the front end of how we identify patients that may be at risk for violence and how we, we respond to that. Then on the back end, we really don't do a good job uh, of this. Um, uh, most places, if you're a, a victim of a workplace violence incident, um, if it's significant enough, the human resources rep hands you a business card that has the number for the contracted EAP provider on there. You Maybe you call them, maybe you don't. You get your three sessions and then you're back. We've talked to so many nurses in the course of our study who are just frustrated to the point of, of maybe even leaving the profession. Uh, we had one nurse in tears saying, yeah, I got, I, I got, I got assaulted uh, pretty badly on, on my shift. They sent me home. They did the right thanks for sending me home. But within the next 24 hours, I got two calls from the staffing office asking me if I could come in and pick up shifts because we're, we're understaffed, yet I never heard from my manager. Nobody ever followed up with me to see how I'm doing. Don't call me to ask me to pick up an extra shift before you've checked in with me to see how I'm doing from my assault on the last one. So there's a disconnect there. And, and, and that's where I think we need to build out programs. There's a, a great program out of Johns Hopkins called RISE program where you have peer counselors, peer support. And if you do this well in your, in your hospital, you will have enough people that in the aftermath of that, there's at least somebody checking up on you. Then what do we do if there is a prosecution? Idaho is one of these states where assaulting a healthcare worker is a felony. And we give the employee the right to decide whether to file charges or not. But what happens, maybe they, maybe it's serious enough they file charges, or maybe this is a pattern of behavior and we decide this is the right intervention we need to do. Um, nobody takes care of you when you get served with that subpoena. And, yeah. and it's a scary thing. And, and maybe that's a whole nother topic, but, but, but what can we do to support employees on the back end. I, I think there's a lot of work that, that can be done there. So um, uh, I guess our goal here today is we really want to introduce that term clinical violence into the lexicon mm -hmm. because I, I do think if you name it, you can tame it. And I think if we start calling attention to it as, as a specific unique subset within workplace violence that has specific challenges and specific opportunities for intervention, um, that's going to help. So we really want to push that. Uh, we've written a white paper on clinical violence, what that is, what we think our, our, our three-pronged solution to the problem is here. Um, so we, uh, um, that is Can available. people download that? Because if so, we'll put that in our show notes. Or if there's a mechanism for interested parties to get in touch with you, we'll make, we'll make that connection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we uh, uh, you can get us on the on uh, the web. Our website is uh, clinicalsecurity.org. Uh, mm -hmm. We have an 800 number, 1-888-705-1007. Um, you can call that uh, and speak to one of our uh, one of our representatives. Uh, and uh, uh, the web uh, or the website has a mechanism to download the white paper. And then we uh, are starting this month a weekly, or I'm sorry, a monthly newsletter that addresses not only clinical violence, but also uh, other broader workplace violence issues and specifically um, threat assessment issues. So that's kind of the focus of our practice. 
Man, this has been a whirlwind tour, but I've been left feeling optimistic. I think this is a problem that can be solved, may not be solved completely, but by first identifying what the issue is and some of the tools that can be used to manage it, I actually feel better than when we started. So I, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. And I, I hope you'll come back. I'd like to continue this conversation with you. I think this has been brilliant. And I'm so glad that our listeners had an opportunity to meet you. Yeah, no, thanks for the opportunity. And I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think, you know, that there are so many other intractable problems in healthcare. I, I, I think this one we can make some headway on. I think uh, by changing the narrative and 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 focusing some attention on this i i think we can j just imagine if you could move the needle on nursing retention by five percent what would that be that's dramatic um and and it's not just nursing it's it's anyone who's burnt out in healthcare healthcare is such a ginormous institution that one percent of anything in healthcare is going to be a really large number now we're talking about some serious money mm -hmm. yep no thanks for the opportunity uh appreciate it and we'll chat again soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Before we end, don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situations. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.